So uh, uh, for those of you who don't know me, Joe didn't just get uh, taller and fatter. Um, I'm Jason Poling. I uh, served as the uh, senior pastor of New Hope for quite a long time until you upgraded at the position. Uh, and uh, Joe is in Texas, so he asked me to come and preach this morning. Did everybody have a good Christmas? That's not actually the right answer. The right answer to that question is I'm still having a good Christmas because this is still Christmas tide. Today is, in fact, the 12th day of Christmas. Tomorrow is Epiphany, and Christmas is finally over then. Uh, I see we've already taken down the Advent trees that you had here before, which is appropriate because, of course, it's not Advent anymore. It's Christmas. Now, I got a very interesting Christmas present. For those of you who can't see this, it says blindfolded twister. And I opened this up on Christmas morning. This was a gift from my, my brother. And I'm thinking, oh, how fun. This is one of those fake boxes. So it says something ridiculous on the outside, and then you open it up and you find out that, no, it actually is blindfolded twister. So just imagine the meeting, right? Hey, you know what we should do? You know that game that's really awkward? Let's make it a lot more awkward. <clears throat> so I get this, and I'm thinking, the first thing, of course, I'm thinking is, because I, I, I mentioned when I was here last month, I've, I've uh, despite my better judgment gotten on social media, um, I'm like, oh, I should post a picture of this on Twitter and say that I'm bringing this to the next clergy conference. Because, of course, everybody would know that that's ridiculous. <clears throat> no one in his right mind would do that. Of course, no one in his right mind would play blindfolded twister in the first place. But then I realized, no, that actually could get me fired. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a priest in the Episcopal Church. We have in our canons an entire title called Title IV, which deals with all disciplinary proceedings. And so... Clergy will nervously joke with one another, don't title for me, but, I'm, and then they'll say something that might be slightly inappropriate. Uh, but the fact is that there probably are some people who, if they really wanted to, if I did post that, could say that I was creating a hostile environment and get me in trouble. I think my bishop has a good enough sense of humor and knows me well enough that he would laugh that off. I'm not so sure of that that I'm going to post that on Twitter. Probably. We'll see. It's several months until clergy conference. But the fact is we live in very judgmental times. There is, especially on social media, what has come to be known as cancel culture. You may have heard about this, where the slightest misstep, the slightest error even things that people did or said years and years ago that have now been discovered are used to discredit them entirely. Entire careers have been destroyed because of one stray word. Even things that were said in entirely appropriate ways and taken out of context. And now that we have the ability to do deep fakes where you can put in people's mouths convincingly on video things they never said, this is only going to get worse. And so in light of that, 
it would seem that what Jesus has to say to us in our passage this morning would be terribly helpful. He says, beginning in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, Don't judge, or you too will be judged. For with the same judgment you judge others, you will be judged yourself. And the measure you use will be used to measure out against you. Why is it that you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. Why don't you first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brothers. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls before swine. If you do, they may trample them underfoot and then turn and tear you to pieces. So when I look at this, I, my mind immediately goes to two books that we have spent long and loving time with here at New Hope, one of them, Book of Ezekiel. <laughs> the other, the Book of Romans. We'll start with Romans. I'll save the treat from Ezekiel until a little bit later. The Romans, <clears throat> as, as you may know, it's a 16-chapter-long book, probably kind of the, the mature expression of the Apostle Paul's, the Apostle Paul's theological uh, thinking. And at the beginning, he starts off by trying to make it clear to this church in Rome that he's talking to everybody there, and he's talking to the whole world. Paul had not known the church in Rome. He had never visited Rome. He knew some people there. You see this in the very last chapter. He gives a whole bunch of shout-outs to, uh, to his friends and, and friends of his friends. But, but at the beginning, he first you know, gives them a greeting, tells them who he is, and he says, I'm really looking forward to coming to visit you. And he says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because that gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. Now, the reason he had to talk about both Jews and Gentiles is that he was addressing both Jews and Gentiles. Among the church in Rome were people who came from a Jewish background and had come to recognize Jesus as Israel's Messiah, and people who came from a Gentile background and had come to recognize Jesus as the Lord of the universe and Israel's Messiah. So he says, I'm not ashamed because this gospel, this good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, God's own righteousness, God's own justice, God's own quality of always being right is revealed. And that righteousness is by faith from first to last. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. Now, you might be asking, well, the, the salvation of God, well, what, what does God need to be saving us from? Well, that's what he lays out next. The wrath of God, Paul says, the wrath of God is being 
revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, since God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all are without excuse. Here Paul is talking about the, the idea that we find expressed elsewhere, for example, in the, in the Psalms that say the heavens declare the glory of God, this idea of general revelation, that, that God has, in a sense, put eternity in everyone's hearts, that he has given everybody a sense of who he is and of what is right and what is not. Everybody has a conscience. Everybody has an awareness of there being powers greater than they are things that they ought to be in awe of and they ought to respect. But not everybody responds the right way. In fact, everybody doesn't. Although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. But really, they were fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so what Paul is talking about here was the very common practice of idolatry. It was common in the first century when he was writing. It was common in the cultures before that. It was common among the peoples amidst whom God had placed his people Israel. This practice of making little statues, idols that you would worship. The story of God's people is one of a decisive rejection of that. The very beginning of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally in the Hebrew, it's up in my face. You're not going to create any idols to worship them like everybody else around you does. And so what Paul is doing here is he's declaiming against idolatry. And one of the things that I've learned on social media is that there are funny these funny gifs, these sort of brief videos, and one of the things that people like to throw up is a gif of somebody kicking back and, and grabbing a, a tub of popcorn because that's what you do when you watch a fight going on that you enjoy watching. You can't wait to see these people duke it out, or you can't wait to see people dunked on that you don't like. And so you get a, there are a number of these, and they're you know they're from some from movies, some from TV shows, you know. So right here, you can imagine some of the Jewish folks in Paul's audience here in Rome breaking out the popcorn. They're like, "Oh, this is great! Paul's tearing into all these wicked Gentile idolaters. I'm here for this all day, every day." Therefore. Paul says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they're like, oh, even better. This is great. Now we get some sex in there. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in their flesh the due penalty for their perversion. And you can imagine they're looking and they're like, hey, we're barely, of course, they didn't know the chapter numbers, but they would have been able to see that Phoebe or whoever was reading this letter to them had this big whole stack of papers and this is only the first one. They're like, this is going to be great. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And so they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They have to make up new ways of doing evil. The ones that are already there aren't enough. They invent new ones. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And even though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. And you can see the folks just throwing up on Twitter the gifts of the people applauding and standing up. And oh, Paul's just tearing into him, isn't he? So, therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Whoa. Yeah, all of you guys who are standing up and pointing your fingers, guess what? You got three pointing right back at you. I mean, we know God's judgment against those who do, does, who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same kinds of things, you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Seems more like you're showing contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. You're not realizing that God's kindness is there to lead you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's going to give everybody what they deserve. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who reject the truth, those who follow evil, it's going to be nothing but wrath and anger. There's going to be trouble and distress for every person who does evil. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Because God doesn't show favoritism. He's entirely just. He's entirely right. Nothing is going to get you off. And when we went through Romans, I pointed out the, the, the whole point of what Paul says at the end of chapter 1 about all these kinds of wickedness is a setup for what he says in chapter 2. The fact that it's a setup doesn't mean what he's saying isn't true. But the point is, Paul says, all of us, and he goes on in chapter 3 to say, what are we going to 
we going to conclude that, that we Jews are, have got it any better? No, the fact is, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it's written. And then he goes and quotes all these different passages from the Psalms. There's nobody righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've become altogether worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And we know, Paul says, we know that whatever Torah says, whatever the law God gave says, it says to those who are under the law, in order that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God, Jew and Gentile alike. No one's going to be declared righteous in his sight by their observance of Torah. Rather, Torah makes clear to us the reality of sin. But now, Paul says, now God's righteousness entirely apart from Torah, has been made known. The law and the prophets testify to it. And this righteousness comes through Jesus' own faithfulness. And it comes to everyone who believes. And there's no difference, Paul says. No difference. Jew, Gentile, in this respect, there's no difference because all have sinned. Every last one has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. But all of us sinners are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, whom God presented as an atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood, doing so in order to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he left those sins committed beforehand unpunished, but he did it to demonstrate his justice right now in order that he may be both just and the one who justifies those who are locked into Jesus' faith. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? I mean, if we really are all alike under wrath, if all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, thanks be to God that we have rescue from this, that we are saved from it. But that still raises the question of what, what do you do with this reality that you have to Make some assessments. I mean, Jesus says right after he says, do not judge, in verses 1 through 5, he does the whole comical bit about you trying to take a speck out of your neighbor's eye while you got a big old log coming out of yours. He says, don't give to dogs what's sacred. Don't throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, how are you going to know what's sacred and what isn't? I mean, scholars aren't entirely clear on what exactly Jesus was saying here, but there's a sense in which it does seem to kind of undo what he just said, right? If he's just saying, don't judge, and then now he says, now you need to exercise some discernment. And that word discernment comes from the same uh, roots that, that, uh, where you get the, the Greek word here that he's using. What do we do with that? 
Well, what some people do with that is they take that as a license to ignore what Jesus said about not judging and to go off and be as judgy as they possibly can. Great theologian, Yale theologian Hans Frey talked about generous orthodoxy. And when he talked about generous orthodoxy, he would say that both are vitally important because if you have generosity without orthodoxy, that's nothing. If you're simply generous in all of your ideas, all of your dealings with people who have different ideas, but you don't hold to orthodox, true Christian faith, then it's just kind of empty. He said, but orthodoxy without generosity is worse than nothing. If you're holding this really high standard and your attitude is one of judgment and condemnation rather than being kind and charitable, well... That actually is worse than nothing. We see plenty of that among God's church on both sides. I want to be clear. And so you'll have a situation like the one we had at New Hope. This was, I think, the only time we had a guest preacher who came and gave a message, and I had to get up the next week and undo that. We had somebody who came and preached on chapter 33 of Ezekiel where... where God says to Ezekiel, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die for his sin and I'll hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he doesn't do so, he'll die for his sin, but you'll have saved yourself. And so the application that our guest gave was that all of us are supposed to call out sin wherever we see it because if we don't, then we're on the hook for whatever sins people commit that we didn't call out. Which would keep me really busy. Here's a good way to discern whether this message is for you. Is your name Ezekiel? Are you a 6th century prophet? Were you sent by God to speak to the house of Israel? Did he ever tell you to make a really weird kind of bread and bake it over human dung? If none of these is true of you, then this may not be something you're supposed to directly apply in your own life. No, Paul, or, uh, God was giving Ezekiel, this, who was his prophet, a particular mandate, a particular job of, of giving a message to his particular people at a particular time. God telling one person to do something at a particular time doesn't mean that all of us need to pick that up and apply it to ourselves. But the truth is that we would have a hard time making it through life if we didn't exercise some judgment. Imagine getting through a parking lot at the supermarket and not having to make judgments about whether you think somebody's about to pull out or not in front of your car. Mary and I had breakfast last week with a good friend of ours. She was in our wedding. She's an immigration attorney, and she's thinking about becoming an immigration judge. I don't think Jesus is trying to tell all of his people that if you're one of my followers, then you can't be on the bench. I don't think he wants to keep all of his followers out of those black robes. If you have a job as a judge, then you have to spend all day judging. If you're a teacher, you have to assess the quality of the work that people 
are submitting to you. you. You can't have a child say, well, you're being too judgmental when you gave me that C. Well, no, it's my job to tell you that your writing was really mediocre. You look in, in the, the pastoral epistles, Paul's letters, First Timothy and Titus, when he talks about the requirements, we get this in First Peter 2, the, the requirements for people who are serving in leadership in the church. There are certain qualities that you expect to find. Somebody who's going to serve in this way should be able to teach, should have a good reputation, should be somebody who is tempered in their living, somebody whose children are not open to the charges of being wild and disobedient. Thankfully, that is not always applied very strictly. But the fact is, if you're not exercising some sort of judgment, some sort of discernment, it's going to be impossible to function. Now, my goal here is not to say, well, this is what Jesus said, but that doesn't make sense, so never mind. I don't want to undermine that at all. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount especially, but throughout his, his uh, teaching, uses devi- literary devices like hyperbole, i.e., for example, e.g., you have a log in your eye, and you're trying to take a speck out of your neighbors. Of course, nobody has an eye big enough for an actual log to be in it. He's making a point by saying something deliberately ridiculous. But the question is, how do we function? How do we make judgments? How do we discern in such a way that nobody can say, hey, hypocrite, why don't you take the speck out of your own eye? I, see, last night, anybody watch the game? Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach, used some very inappropriate language. And they did not cut away from him when he was doing it. And he was very unhappy that the other coach was, was using a twist in the rules to run time off the clock. Did you see that, Dan? And Bill Belichick, I'm, Bill, look, Bill Belichick is the last person who should be complaining about anybody abusing the rules for, their, for his own benefit. So how do you end up not looking like Bill at Belichick is really kind of the question. Other than not wearing the hoodie with the cutoff sleeves. I think the first thing we have to do, as Peter says in his first letter, is let judgment start with the household of God. Now let me make it clear. What that does not mean have judgment start with the household of God does not mean that you take those parts of the household of God that you don't like or that you don't agree with and start judging them. That's not the point. The point is, look in the mirror. But the fact is, if you've got a log in your eye, you're going to have a hard time seeing what you need to see if you look in the mirror. read a book, just one, um, where a, a scholar named Lauren Winner was talking about her research among slaveholders in the American South, reading in the prayer journal of a woman who was praying that God would make her slaves more obedient so she wouldn't have to beat them as often. Now, we look at that and we think, lady, what, what were you missing? But the fact is she couldn't see it at the time. So because simply looking in the mirror ourselves is probably not going to get us there, we need to place ourselves in a posture where we welcome 
the observations, the discernment, the rightly applied judgment of others. Where we say to somebody that we trust, is there something I'm missing here? Is there something I'm not seeing? Because I'm noticing some specks, but it may be that there's a big log. And that's one of the reasons that we have house churches. We always have a new hope. It's been part of our DNA from the beginning. So we get in a group of people where we get used to praying together. We get used to studying scriptures together. We live life with one another. We serve one another. We come alongside one another. We move one another from place to place. We develop the kinds of relationships by doing that where we can say to somebody, I trust you enough to ask you to call out something that you see. And I know that you love me enough that you're going to say it if you see it. That's how we do this. So as the worship team comes up, I want to finish with this prayer, also from the Book of Common Prayer. This is the prayer of the day of Pentecost. And it's a prayer. This is on page 227 of your prayer book, if you ever want to use it. I don't think there's going to be anybody. I don't have any authority over anything in this building anymore, but it's a pretty safe bet that if you were to take one of these prayer books with you, nobody would notice. But the prayer is this, O God, who on that day of Pentecost taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.